Kent Garrett. Welcome to another episode of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. Our guest is Sam Jackson. He is an assistant professor in the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity at the University at Albany. His book is titled Oath Keepers, Patriotism and the Edge of Violence in a Right-Wing Anti-Government Group. I'm joined by 19 of my classmates. Uh, I'm Jay Pasikoff, an astronomer at Williams College. And if I uh, weren't talking to you, I could start grading 50 exams that the students are doing today <laughs> for, the, for the first hour exams. But I'm looking forward to our discussion. <laughs> All right, Peter, the freedom number one, Peter Dell. <laughs> Me? Yeah. I want to I want I want to read you guys something my son just posted from Texas. He is a uh, professor uh, at the University of Texas, professor in education. He he teaches the teachers of Texas and teaches teaches the teachers who teach teachers of Texas. <laughs> and now and then his colleagues his colleagues go over to the legislature to give them a piece of his of their mind and all the republicans leave of course uh the latest hobby horse of the lieutenant governor down there there uh, uh this is from the austin american statesman lieutenant governor dan patrick said he plans to propose ending all tenure for new hires at texas public universities and revoking tenure for faculty who teach critical race theory, a framework of scholarship to, to study racism. So my son Noah just posted uh, the latest plan for Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick to destroy the education of college students in Texas and to crater the public university system. I've always taught critical race theory in my classes, Patrick's overheated opposition to it lets me know I'm on the right track. Going forward, Lieutenant Governor, I will be thinking about how I can make critical approaches to race and racism even more central to my teaching. <laughs> so, great. my son's post. Peter Gorelli. <clears throat> yeah, um, I'm originally class of 63 at Harvard although I graduated two years later in 65 for a whole bunch of reasons that we don't need to go into now. Um, I have to confess that before January 6 last year, I had never heard of the Oath Keepers. I knew nothing about the Oath Keepers. And even now, even more than a year later, I know very little uh, about the Oath Keepers. So I'm particularly looking forward, Sam, to your comments uh, today. Uh, Ken Manister, uh, I'm a retired uh, professor in environmental law at Santa Clara University, uh, originally from Chicago, uh, Illinois, and a classmate of uh, these folks from Harvard. Alden. Well, I, uh, Alden Briscoe, and I <clears throat> live about uh, 15 miles north of Ken. And Huberman, also class of 63. I live in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I'm a retired academic librarian and climate <clears throat> activist. All right, Jerry. Hi, I'm Jerry Secundi. I live in Pasadena, California. I'm an environmental lawyer. And Ken, I'd like to know if you have a spare bedroom because if Putin 
goes crazy, LA is going to get hit. You're not going to get hit. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Hamp. <clears throat> Hamp Powell, Nashville, Tennessee, clinical psychologist. John Woodford, I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, I've been mainly in journalism and black press, regular press, and University of Michigan um, publications. Connie. Yeah, Connie McDougald, retired lawyer, also in the class of 63. Um, I am sitting here trying to figure out the state of the world and I'm looking forward to hearing about the Oath Keepers. Maybe it'll help me understand a bit more. Okay, Jeff. Hi, I'm Jeff Fox. I'm living in Spain where we have our own variety of right-wing extremists. Uh, fortunately, not anywhere near as powerful or as close to power as it looks like uh, they are in the, in the United States. But there's a sizable group of folks uh, with, of course, other issues, very heavy against immigration, against, against uh, the refugees, especially if they're coming from, from Africa or the Mideast. Uh, and um, well, a problem. Okay, George, George Jones. George Jones. Yeah. I'm like John, I actually live in Ann Arbor, but right now I'm in Muskogee, Oklahoma, the town in which I grew up. So Jerry, if you need a place to hang out when the bombs start falling, come to Muskogee because I don't think you're going to going to hit here either. <laughs> Doug. Uh, I'm Doug Shapiro. Uh, my wife and I have been living in Louisville, Kentucky for the last year and a half. Uh, we came here right after uh, a lot of the um, uprisings and so forth. Uh, came after the uh, police murder of a, a, a young uh, woman here. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm a retired physician. I was also a behavioral ecologist and a pharmaceutical uh, physician. Uh, but I am now fully retired and just trying to educate myself again uh, in, in my spare time. Okay, Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft outside of Boston, 15 miles roughly. Um, um, classmates of most of these guys uh, after college, Harvard Business School, Peace Corps in India, uh, investments, manufacturing, uh, and retired. Um, I have to admit that when I first heard the term oath keeper, it was in a total neutral environment. And the first thing that came to my mind was Boy Scouts. Wow, wow, wow. Mason. I'm Mason Morfitt, uh, spent 33 years as an environmentalist, still working on climate change. Uh, I was admitted with the class of 62, but didn't graduate until 63. Uh, and we can discuss that if we ever want to have a session on uh, the forensics of undergraduate education. But uh, the good news was that I got to room with Kent uh, in my last year, and that's why I'm here. All right, great. Spencer. I'm Spencer from Serene Hub, Orlando, Florida. Uh, peace and love abounding throughout the region. And uh, I am... Uh, uh, still on the quest for a sustainable world, though listening to all of the wisdom that's going to come from this session. Okay, 
I would I would add to Spencer's uh, remarks since I'm also calling from Florida that it's a good day for us down here because it's the first day in about a week that there hasn't been another piece of outrageous legislation proposed by our governor. Right, right. Okay, great. Richard. Hi, I'm Richard Rubinowitz. I'm a historian and museum curator, mostly in Brooklyn. I'm in Santa Monica today, visiting my sister. Um, I was in the class of 66, so um, I'm, uh, I was a freshman when many of you were, were uh, seniors, and I'm still learning from my Marcy. <laughs> I'm in New York City, not retired, um, <clears throat> and working to uh, keep public, massive public subsidies from subsidizing development in the Hudson River in a top-risk hurricane zone. Okay. Wow. wow. And Professor Sam Jackson, welcome. Thank you for coming on and tell us about Oak, Keep Oak Keepers. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's uh, interesting to hear all the, the backgrounds that y'all are coming from um, and some of the, the prior knowledge that you maybe do or don't have of Oath Keepers. So um, maybe I'll give you like a just a really quick spiel about how I think of Oath Keepers and a little bit of their history and, and why I think they matter. Um, I have a tendency to be uh, pretty brief in my comments. So um, throw me questions if you have any so that I, I say more about a thing rather than just moving on. Um, so I've, I've long been interested in right-wing extremism and uh, particularly in the US. And uh, when I started doing my PhD in uh, 2013, um, I knew that I was interested not so much in explicitly white supremacist forms of, of right-wing extremism like the KKK or neo-Nazis, um, but other forms of right-wing extremism that aren't organized around some perceived racial identity. Um, a lot of folks would refer to the, these types as being in the militia movement or the so-called patriot movement. Um, I tend to think of groups like Oath Keepers as being anti-government extremists who are part of a movement that I refer to as the Patriot slash militia movement because I'm an academic and I can't make anything easy. I've got to throw in more confusing words there into the name. Um, and I sort of quickly um, identified Oath Keepers as one of the most prominent examples of this form of right-wing extremism in the US and decided that I would write my PhD dissertation um, on this group and, and later turn that into my book. So Oath Keepers is part of this uh, history of right-wing extremism in America that thinks about uh, threats to the nation more so than threats to a particular racial group. Um, we can see historical legacies of this in things like the John Birch Society of the, the 50s and 60s. Um, and there's you know, a whole lineage of, of groups like this over time. Oath Keepers is primarily organized around this perception that government is or will very soon become tyrannical and will use a whole bunch of different strategies to try to violate the basic rights of everyday Americans. And if we sort of stop there, we might be like, oh, well, that sounds like a reasonable thing for us to think about if we want to think about civil liberties abuses or, you know, we could identify a bunch of ways that in a superficial level, we might think that Oath Keepers are onto something. But then you start looking at the 
the things that they point to as examples of tyranny and violations of rights. And it's all about martial law and blockading cities and um, going door to door to confiscate uh, firearms owned by, by private citizens. And you quickly start to see that um, a lot of the ideas and rhetoric that Oath Keepers engages in and promotes is kind of like new world order conspiracy theories of this big bad foreign other that's gonna come in and subvert what makes America great. Um, the, the group is rather fond um, of trying to portray itself as a benign education, civically oriented group. Um, they, they try to say they're nonpartisan, they're just interested in encouraging uh, current and former members of military and law enforcement to honor their oaths to support and defend the constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. But again, when you start to drill down into things, you see that Oath Keepers is primarily thinking about domestic enemies. And the domestic enemies that the group is thinking about are those who are not um, sufficiently uh, dedicated to their understanding of how America was founded. Um, so they're, they're, the enemies they identify are people who are forsaking the legacy of the founders or, or things like that. So what we see over a period from especially 2009 to 2016 is Oath Keepers engaging in a lot of rhetoric and in a lot of what we might even call propaganda to try to get its brand out there to build its name to encourage people to either join the group or at least to support the group's ideas and goals and, and promote the group's ideas and goals in various ways. But we also see interspersed with that a number of um, events that Oath Keepers would refer to as security operations where members of the group decide to arm up, put on their tactical vests, their helmets, all that kind of stuff, and go somewhere in order to be ready to engage in violence. The first big example of this was in 2014 with the Bundy Ranch standoff, where Clive and Bundy, this rancher out in Nevada, refused to pay uh, fees to graze his cattle on federal land for something like 20 years. In the end, he owed the federal government more than a million dollars in unpaid um, fees and penalties. And eventually a federal judge ordered uh, the Bureau of Land Management and other federal employees to confiscate some of Bundy's cattle in lieu of that million plus dollars that Bundy owed the federal government. Bundy interpreted that as a violation of his um, rights and, and an example of uh, government gone tyrannical um, and encouraged patriots, so-called patriots from around the country to travel to his ranch in Nevada to support him. And Oath Keepers were among those who went and they armed up, they made it clear that they were ready to use their firearms to prevent federal law enforcement and, and the Bureau of Land Management from carrying out this federal court order. Um, and eventually they, they more or less won on that day. The threats of violence were severe enough that the Bureau of Land Management decided they were going to stop their activity carrying out that federal court order. Well, this kind of emboldened Oath Keepers along with other similar types of extremists and led them to engage in other similar sorts of security operations around the country over the coming years. Um, one of them was 
this very heavily armed uh, so-called security operation in Southwest Oregon at the uh, Sugar Mine Pine in Josephine County, uh, Oregon, where Oath Keepers traveled from as far away as New Hampshire and Alabama and um, all across the, uh, from all across the country to provide a security for these two miners who were convinced that the Bureau of Land Management was going to burn down their, uh, their cabins and their equipment on this small little mine claim that they held in, in this rural place in Oregon. So potentially as many as hundreds of Oath Keepers from around the country armed up and traveled to this mountain to, to uh, do what they described as protecting the rights of these miners. Um, and, and they stayed there for quite a while. They were doing things like uh, checking everyone who came on site to make sure that they didn't have a bomb under their car. They had a public information officer to liaise with media who were coming to cover the situation. So just these two examples kind of illustrate how Oath Keepers perceives these threats coming from the federal government. And the group decides that it is incumbent upon them and others they describe as patriots to be ready to use violence to push off this government action that they see as tyrannical. Now, uh, over, over the period of um, 2016 and 2017, the group kind of underwent this pretty important shift where prior to that time, they had really focused on the federal government as the primary threat that Americans face. And a lot of their rhetoric and propaganda was, was based around Americans need to be ready to fight against government. Well, with 2016, we saw Donald Trump running for president and we saw um, right-wing extremists of various kinds coalesce behind Trump. It took a little while for Oath Keepers to do this, but in the end, um, the organization and even more importantly, its membership really coalesced behind Trump as well. Um, part of this is because of uh, who Trump was running against, Hillary Clinton, just having that name Clinton um, is anathema to this movement. Um, so they were they would have been happy to support anyone who is running against Hillary Clinton. But another reason that they coalesced behind Trump was because of some of his Islamophobic and nativist um, bigotry that he engaged in throughout the campaign. So a few minutes ago, I mentioned that I was really interested in forms of right-wing extremism that aren't explicitly organized around a perceived racial identity. In other words, people who aren't necessarily white supremacists. Oath Keepers isn't organized around a perception of white identity and they claim to not be racist, but there are some pretty big through lines of bigotry within the movement in terms of Islamophobia and anti-immigrant stuff. I have a question which is sort of related to this, but what was the impetus for the founding of the group and when was it founded? Good question. I skipped right over the start. Um, so the group was founded in 2009 and um, it, it launched in early 2009. It formally launched on April 21st um, and they held their first uh, public event on the Lexington Green outside of Boston. And they said they chose that date and location as their, their first event to remember where we've come from, pointing back to the first battle of the American Revolution. So um, the, the guy who founded the group, along with some of his friends, um, is a guy named Stuart Rhodes. Um, he said that he and his friends decided that they were going to start this group before the outcome of the 2008 presidential election was known. 
um, that presidential election contest was between Barack Obama, who would eventually win, and John McCain. Um, so they, they said that they had been watching the government and especially the executive branch sort of coalesce more and more authority as part of the war on terror. And they were worried that the federal government was going to pivot that power towards internal dissidents, dissidents and dissenters. So Rhodes in particular was fond of saying things like um, the enemy combatant status that we use to detain terrorists and put them in Guantanamo. Well, that's going to be used against liberty minded Americans who won't comply with gun control regulation, things like that. Hmm. So Rhodes is a, a veteran um, he was in a, a he was a paratrooper for a, a while before he was injured in a training accident, and he says that his motivation was really to target current and former members of the military to remind them of the oaths that they took when they joined the military, among other things, to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Some of his friends were police officers, and they said, "We take the same oath when we become police officers. So why doesn't your group also think about?" trying to recruit law enforcement in addition to the military. So that was the, the sort of impetus. That was how they described themselves. They claim that they are not uh, motivated by um, Barack Obama win winning that presidential election. Um, and I think that, I, I think it's very possible that the, the core in the group really wasn't motivated directly by Obama winning, but I think it would be a very different group had John McCain won that election. I think it would have been a much smaller group. It probably wouldn't have gotten as much traction. It wouldn't have found nearly as much support from broader Americans who were angry about Obama's victory. Are there any significant numbers of Blacks, Asians, Hispanics, members of the Oath Keepers? The first thing that um, Stuart Rhodes will say is, um, he will say he is a quarter Mexican, so he couldn't possibly be white supremacist. Huh. There are some uh, members of minoritized groups within Oath Keepers, and uh, the 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 founder and the founders and organizers who launched the group went through the trouble of writing bylaws for the group and filing them with the Nevada Secretary of State. Um, and those bylaws say, among other things, that if you've ever been a member of a racist organization, you're not welcome to join Oath Keepers. But in practice, what we've seen is. Um, Oath Keepers has some, some pretty uh, virulent and nasty through lines of Islamophobia, of nativism in, in terms of rhetoric about illegal, so-called illegal immigration and a lack of security at the US-Mexico border. Um, and as we get closer and closer to the present, we see the group being more and more willing to um, show up alongside explicit white supremacists in various sorts of rallies and events and, and things like that, including the January 6th insurrection. Something that, that I have argued about groups like Oath Keepers is they engage with and promote different conspiracy theories that have been present on the American right for decades and decades. And in the past, some of those conspiracy theories have been explicitly, intentionally anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So, for example, thinking about the global financial elite, often conspiracy theories about the global financial elite says that it's Jewish elites who are controlling the global financial scene and, and we need to be concerned about this Jewish threat. 
for Oath Keepers, they've done a little bit of whitewashing of these conspiracy theories, um, using that phrase whitewashing kind of tongue in cheek there. Um, I don't know how deliberate the whitewashing has been, but I think that they have, they are not intentionally anti-Semitic when they talk about the global financial elite. For a group like Oath Keepers, the problem with, let's say the Rothschilds, the alleged problem with the Rothschilds is not their Jewishness, it's rather their eliteness and the fact that they are um, working to benefit themselves at the expense of everyday people and that they don't um, agree with the Oath Keepers understanding of foundational American values like liberty, et cetera. Um, this raises a lot of questions for me as a historian. Um, do they have any roots in the Birch, John Birch Society or earlier? You know, this goes back to early American resentment of the Bavarian Illuminati and the kind of uh, anti-Masonic movement and the know-nothings. I mean, are they, do they have any sense of themselves as being in a tradition of this? And that, that's one question I had, Sam. And another one is, um, um, this week we had this argument in the Supreme Court about the, the role of executive regulatory agencies uh, and their uh, arrogation of, according to the kind of conservative legal doctrine, their arrogation of, of uh, roles that Congress hasn't really delegated to uh, the EPA or other, other agencies. And I wondered whether or not they had any kind of thinking in their notion of tyranny about when they say executive authority, are they thinking, uh, is there any alignment of this with a kind of right-wing conservative federalist society kind of libertarian, you know, so I'll stop with my synonyms for this, but let you see what, see what you have to say about that. Yeah, so thinking about the historical precedents is really interesting. We can, I, I argue that um, Americans have found conditions in which they think that the proper response to government overreach is violence since the very early years of the country, thinking about the Whiskey Rebellion and Fry's Rebellion and, and those sorts of things. Um, but the, the more um, proximate historical legacy is definitely JBS and that sort of the, the Red Scare, anti-communist conspiracy theories um, in the, the first half of the 19th 20th century, most of the 20th century, really. Um, some of this is not recognized by the group. Some of it definitely is. They, uh, for a long time, posted a link to the current JBS website on their own website. And they frequently repost content from, I think it's called the American Conservative, is the publication from JBS uh, now. So there's definitely a little bit of that explicit linkage um, with some of these prominent right-wing conspiracy theorists from the not too distant American past. Let me, let me uh, jump on Richard's other question there um, about congressional delegation and, and executive authority and, and things like this. Um, one thing I forgot to mention about the founder of Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, he's a graduate of Yale Law School. Um, and one of the things that he really likes to tout is that he won um, a prize for uh, civil liberties essays for an essay he wrote about unlawful enemy combatant status in the war on terror and how it was a violation of constitutional rights. Um, what we see is that 
some of the prominent individuals within Oath Keepers, we could describe them as hyper libertarians or radical libertarians. Um, they really want to go back to a very minimalist understanding of the government that's responsible for defending borders and not much else. Um, so when they're thinking about executive authority, I think most of them don't have sophisticated understandings of how government authority works in practice and how it gets established. Um, in the end, words like tyranny for Oath Keepers, um, I, I describe it as an ideograph in my book, um, which is a, a concept from a communication scholar, the name of whom I am forgetting right now. Um, and it refers to these ideas that have really powerful moral weight, but aren't clearly defined. Things like freedom, liberty. Yeah. I could think of more things, but right now those are the two that are coming to mind. So mm. they use these concepts like tyranny and like liberty in, in ways that rely on their emotional weight to, to really rile people up and get people agitated and, and sort of emotionally on their side. But they don't take a lot of time to define what tyranny actually means or how you know when your core rights are being violated that would justify violent resistance. Um, this is something I, I still need to think about more to understand how strategic ambiguity, um, which is another phrase I've used to describe this, works in these groups. Um, but I think we can definitely see it present. Okay, I think George had his hand up. George Jones. Yeah, Sam, I've got a couple of perhaps unrelated questions. The first is, do these guys really value their independence or are they really, or are they sort of interested in networking with other groups like the Proud Boys, maybe even the NRA, in creating sort of a, a, a national network of organizations that, that, that espouse the same kinds of ideas? And my second, again, the sort of unrelated question is that reading Kent's the information Ken sent, your appointment is in the College of Emergency Preparedness, what is it, Homeland Security and Cybersecurity. And I guess I, I would like to know what goes on in that college. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good second question, George. Um, I came in shortly after the college was formed, so I don't know the full details of our launching. Um, but I think the idea was um, the... Uh, there, there was a, a, a sense that we needed to bring together people working on different types of threats and risk and vulnerabilities and ways that we mitigate those different types of threats and risks and vulnerabilities. So we end up having people who study disasters and, and um, recovery as well as mitigation. We have people who study terrorism and we have people who study border security and people who study uh, cybercrime and people who study the technical infrastructure of different cyber devices that make them more or less vulnerable to different types of cyber risks, which is a long way of saying we do a lot of things here at CEHC, as we call it. Um, it's a great big smorgasbord. Um, so your first question about uh, independence or, or networking is a really interesting one. So um, one of the things that we know about the organization is that the leader, um, most of his income came from the group. He was paid a salary by the group. So he had a certain uh, motivation to see people become dues paying members. To join Oath Keepers, you actually pay dues 
I think it's something like $50 a year, or you can pay far more to be a lifetime member or what they call a, uh, I think they call it a Liberty tree member as well. Um, <laughs> so there's definitely a desire for them to have people join the group in a formal way, but leaders in the organization have also at times said, we don't necessarily need you to join our group. We're happy if you just are convinced by us. If you are convinced by the things that we care about, by the things that we talk about, you can be an Oathkeeper in lowercase, even if you don't join the group and become an official Oathkeeper. On top of that, we have definitely seen some networking and some overlap with other groups and movements. The most prominent one is um, a anti-government movement called the Three Percenters, which refers to this apocryphal notion that 3% of the residents of the British colonies in North America took up arms and actively fought against the British in the American Revolution. And if 3% of the residents of the colonies were able to defeat the most powerful army in the 19th century, then 3% of Americans today could defeat what is today the most powerful army in the world. Um, there's been, sorry? 18th century. 18, yep. That's the one. I always mess that up. Um, so, so we have seen some explicit cooperation between three percenters and Oath Keepers um, at various times, whether it's showing up together at events or inviting one another to speak at the other's uh, meetings or things like that. Um, we certainly see them engage in sort of what, what you might think of as a coalition with other people who they might not ideologically agree with, like Proud Boys, in the context of specific events. One thing we saw um, in, let's see, I'm going to embarrass myself around a couple of historians because I'm really bad with dates. Um, the Unite the Right rally, I think, was in 2017. Oathkeepers announced before that event that they weren't going to go because of explicit white supremacists who were going to be present and they didn't want to be associated with those explicit white supremacists. But just a couple of years later, and for sure by early 2021, they were all too happy to stand shoulder to shoulder with out and out white supremacists who they viewed as pursuing the same goals, if nothing else. Jeff. Yeah, I have uh two or maybe two and a half questions. The, um, the first one is, do, we, do you have any idea of how many people we're talking about? And, and the, the half question, and are any of them women? And then, then the other question is, um, uh, well, it's not really a question, but just an observation. Uh, because a lot of what you say they, they believe in sounds like left-wing anarchists, except that left-wing anarchists Normally, at least the ones I've known, have a vision of the kind of society they want to want to create, and I don't get this sense that the oath keepers have any positive view of uh, you know of what they want um, in the, for the future. Um, since probably 2014, oath keepers has claimed around 35,000 dues-paying members. Um, watchdog organizations estimate that. Um, the number of currently active members is probably in the low couple of thousands. Um, in 2020, I think there were a couple of membership uh, lists that were either leaked uh, to journalists and watchdog organizations or hacked by activists that showed between 35,000 and 40,000 names on those lists. But that's probably a list of 
people who have ever been affiliated with the organization formally, not a list of current affiliates at one particular time. But unfortunately, um, it's more complicated than that. So the way that Oath Keepers works is there's this national organization that is led by a board of directors and Stuart Rhodes, the founder and president. Um, and national organization is who you pay your dues to if you become a dues paying member. Um, but there are state and local chapters around the country. And it is at least possible that you could become affiliated with a state or local chapter without ever becoming a dues paying member of the national organization or vice versa. You could become a dues paying member of the national organization without being coming involved in a state or local chapter. It's still more complicated because of course it is. Um, we might only be interested in people who are formal members of the group, but if so, we're gonna miss a lot, a lot, a lot of people who buy into the same ideas, engage in the same sort of rhetoric, and even are willing to take similar sorts of action. Before Facebook decided uh, that Oath Keepers violated their terms of service, for example, Oath Keepers had a bunch of different Facebook pages and groups, some of which had more than 100,000 likes and followers. So one thing that I'm constantly trying to encourage people to do is to view Oath Keepers as a really concrete example of a much broader phenomenon in American politics of people who worry about government uh, tyr tyranny and, and who justify the use of violence to oppose that sort of thing. Now you mentioned similarities with left-wing forms of extremism, especially anarch anarchism. Um, there probably are a lot of substantive and maybe even ideological overlaps there. Mm -hmm. The big difference for me is I call Oath Keepers a right-wing extremist group um, because their version of the ideal society lives in the past rather than in the future. Mm. So they're trying to restore an understanding of America from the 18th or the early 19th century that was just in a very different world than what we live in. Oh, and also coincidentally, they believe in colorblind versions of American history that downplays the role of slavery and racism and all that kind of stuff. So they would reject that their, their desire to restore founding America would, would be a reinvigorating systemic and institutional and official racism in the country. We have many uh, left-wing anarchist type groups run here in Ann Arbor that hooked up very closely with the right-wing groups endorsing the truckers in Canada. And they all uh, agreed and, uh, and uh, you know, coalesced around cheering on these uh, truckers. But uh, also, as you point out, the fact that they can draw on people in the police and the military means that, as you say, uh, a small number of them in organizations like that under certain conditions and circumstances that we may not see today would be poised to be quite uh, dangerous and influential as they were uh, with the Nazis. But of course, Hitler, once the Nazis got in, they had the night of the long knives and they executed a whole bunch of what would be like the Oath Keepers uh, out of the Nazi movement because they felt they weren't reliably uh, fascist, that they were kind of more sympathetic to uh, working class and uh, democratic principles 
which might be some of the principles you're referring to. So yeah, they uh, Ernst Rome and uh, that group, they wipe them out in the uh, Night of the Long Knives. So I, th I think we can definitely see some overlap around specific issues um, between right-wing extremists in general and left-wing extremists in general. And we see, we've seen a lot of this with COVID. Um, in particular, we've seen right-wing conspiracists um, who, who think about government tyranny in responses to the pandemic and in vaccine mandates and things like that. And maybe they see a Jewish conspiracy behind the, the vaccine, whether it's something like Bill Gates injecting robots into your body or whatever the case may be. And we also see um, more left-wing people who um, are worried about uh, the pharmaceutical industry or the medical industry more broadly and are into natural health kind of things who are also resistant to vaccines and vaccine mandates, even if for slightly different reasons. So we mm -hmm. certainly have seen some examples of people coming together who ideologically disagree, but want the same end goal in a particular context. Yeah, they say Trudeau is an example with uh, some others of people who've been trained by a global training group that's uh, sending leaders like this uh, all around the world. Yeah, you would think that those people would be much more effective leaders if they truly had that kind of training. <laughs> yeah, uh, like, you've obviously, this is fascinating, you've obviously gathered a great deal of uh, knowledge and expertise about the Oath Keepers. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your uh, methods of, of gathering that knowledge and expertise. Did you, um, first of all, how many... Uh, Oath Keepers, did you interview or did you interview Stuart Rhodes for, to begin with? And how representative do you think the people that you did interview are of the entire group? That's a great question. I'm a, a little bit of a research methods nerd, so I like to get to talk about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, what, what I realized pretty early when I was starting to think about this project was that my primary interest was in understanding how Oath Keepers presented itself to a broader American public to make its ideas, goals, and the actions it advocated on behalf of those ideas and goals more palatable to a broad American public. Because so much of what it's doing is hyperventilating about conspiracy theories or planning for future violence to be used against the government, which in American society, in contemporary American society, violence used against the government is not seen as a legitimate political tool by the vast majority of Americans. If we think about um, the sort of ideal types of political activism and engagement in America, it's like it's voting and it's the uh, civil rights movement that in popular memory was nonviolent, period. So Oath Keepers has this um, challenge that it faces of like any sort of so social or political organization or movement, it wants people to agree with it. It wants people to support it. So how does it actually marshal that support? Um, what I, what I ended up studying was the group's public facing communication, um, primarily through the lens of the internet. So I looked at all of the things that it posted to its website over a number of years. Um, all of the things, all of the videos that it posted to YouTube, 
um, as well as a couple of blogs that were either official Oath Keepers blogs or were run by Stuart Rhodes, the, the founder. Um, I ended up not talking to, I, I didn't do any interviews as part of this project, partially because um, I reached out to Stuart Rhodes to see if he would help facilitate some of those interviews. And he said, no, he spent five minutes telling me no, actually. Um, and in part, actually, I think there are some justifiable methodological reasons for that. If I'm interested in the group's public presentation, I wanna study the group's public presentation. I could ask members of the organization about it as well, and I might learn different things, but I would need to filter the, those interviews through some sort of analytical lens that would help me distinguish the, the sort of, I don't know how we feel about swearing on this uh, podcast, the, <laughs> filter the, the bullshit that they might be telling me that would try to make themselves look better or hide their real um, motivations from, from the stuff that was real. Um, by studying the, their public presentation, I was able to understand how they try to portray themselves to a broader public, what they thought would be effective in building their reputation. And my one, sum, one sentence summary of my book is that Oath Keepers uses stories of moments of conflict and crisis from American history in order to gain support from a broader public um, to identify, um, oh, I've lost my phrasing, my beautiful one sentence summary. <laughs> they use moments of conflict and crisis from American history to make sense of the situation they find themselves in, to gain support from a broader American public, and also to look for precedents for what type of action they should take given the conflicts that they perceive. Ah, okay. Good. Ken. First of all, congratulations on that sentence. That's a hell of a sentence. Yeah. Thank you. I'm impressed. Um, I just wondered if you have any thoughts uh, about the Oath Keepers relative to uh, January 6th um, insurrection in terms of their uh, involvement in advance, uh, possibility of coordination with other groups or with uh, uh, people in Trump's orbit. Um, their parent, their military file entry into the Capitol and the uh, arrests and prosecutions now, a any of that. I realize that's a, that's a tall order and I realize it's, uh, it's, it's different from the public uh, face of the, of the group. But I wonder if you had any thoughts on any, any of those aspects you could share. Yeah, um, the first thing I'll say is that I've already been wrong about this a couple of times over the past 15 months or however long it's been since the insurrection um, because we have continued to see new information being revealed, especially in court filings related to various uh, cases um, stemming from January 6th. Um, so there were certainly Oath Keepers present on the day. They were present in a very prominent and visible way in terms of that um, military style stack when they walked up the, the steps of the Capitol with one person holding onto the shoulder of the person in front of them, um, wearing somewhat tactical gear in, in doing so. Um, and we've seen, I, I want to say that the total number of arrested people who have been identified as being members of the organization is around 20, might be a little higher than that actually. Um, and I think it's 12 of them are facing seditious conspiracy charges which is a really 
dramatic charge for the federal government to use. They don't, uh, prosecutors don't file that charge particularly often. Um, one thing we know is that some of those who came to DC ready for a fight on January 6th were convinced that Antifa was gonna show up and was going to engage in violence against the Trump supporters who were there for the Stop the Steal rally. Um, of course that didn't happen, but Antifa has long been a boogeyman for Oath Keepers and others like Oath Keepers. So some portion of those who showed up on the day anticipated that they were going to engage in, in street violence against Antifa. Some others were planning much more proactively ahead of time that they were going to do whatever they needed to do to try to stop the electoral college vote certification. Um, and in fact, we're, uh, we haven't seen any of the trials start for the seditious conspiracy charges yet, but yesterday, apparently, one of those charged actually pled guilty to seditious conspiracy. He didn't even plead down to some lesser charge. He pled to seditious conspiracy, and he said that he engaged in coordinated efforts with others in the group beforehand to plan how they were going to interrupt the certification of the Electoral College vote. We can think about more ways that the Oath Keepers were involved. Um, for example, some of them were allegedly there to provide security for Roger Stone, the, the former Trump confidant um, and sort of big personality, I'll call him that. Um, we've, we've, we know of other ties that Oath Keepers have had, or um, maybe not ties, but, but certainly suggestions of ties, whether it's something like Stuart Rhodes and other members of Oath Keepers wearing VIP badges at Trump rallies or being in the first row of the crowd behind him um, or claiming that they were going to help with security at a Trump rally, things like that. So we know that there's lots of different types of involvement um, in violence around Trump. We know that there were different, um, they had different um, predictions about what kinds of things they were going to do in Washington, D.C. on January 6th whether it was engaging in street violence or more coordinated efforts to prevent the functioning of American democracy. Um, and I think we'll probably continue to learn about new things for probably even years to come. Uh, but Sam, um, despite the diversity of motivation that you just mentioned, um, I think the, the guy who just pled guilty, his name is Joshua James, I think, who was an oath, oath keeper. Um, doesn't simply the fact of his pleading guilty to conspiracy charges somewhat discredit um, the fundamental ideology of, of uh, Oath Keepers? So I think it's important to, how do I want to say this? One of the distinctions that I make when talking about Oath Keepers is between leaders and lay members. Leaders are much more ideologically on point and um, disciplined, whereas rank and file members, um, so Oath Keepers as an organization, not motivated or not organized around a perceived threat to a white racial identity. But people might join Oath Keepers because they perceive that they are a part of a white racial group that is under threat from racial others. In other words, there, there are these ideas that are espoused by the group, what we might think of as the, the more formal ideology of the group, 
but there's there's room for people to advocate for different types of ideas within the group. Similarly, there's room for rank and file members of the organization to take action that the organization itself might not want people to take. We've seen the, the Oath Keepers organization engage in some sort of post hoc policing when some of its members get arrested for doing things, um, whether it's um, things like uh, charges related to um, sexual assault of minors. That, that's happened a couple of times with Oath Keepers. We've seen things like people um, being arrested because they were crossing state lines to use their firearms to engage in a citizen's arrest against politicians who's, who they believed were treasonous for not trying to impeach Barack Obama or for voting a particular way on a piece of legislation. So the group also does a little bit of this post hoc policing to try to say, oh, they're not really one of us as revealed now by their actions. In addition to that, because of how potentially big the group is and how broad we can think of its supporters as being from formal members all the way to people who maybe like what they have to say on social media, I think there is room for different cells, if you like it, of Oath Keepers to have been planning different types of things on January 6th. From those who were planning to storm the Capitol to others who weren't planning to storm the Capitol, who maybe weren't communicating with those who were planning to storm the Capitol, but were instead planning to engage in street violence against Antifa. When Antifa didn't show up, they then pivoted that preparation for violence to storm the Capitol. I have a question, which is, um, are, are some members of the Oath Keepers active members of the military and active members of the police? and related question, which is what is the response or what is the position of the military and various police departments to, to the Oath Keepers? Thanks for the question, which also reminded me that I didn't answer a previous question about gender. So I'll hit yes. that as well here. Um, so there are some current uh, members of law enforcement and the military in the organization. Um, in the past, Oath Keepers has specifically encouraged people who are current serving in the military to sign up under pseudonyms so that they don't get in trouble or something like that, or so that their military roles aren't known. But in some of the membership um, log leaks that we've seen over the past couple of years, there are people who signed up for Oath Keepers memberships with a .mil email address. Um, I think there are probably far more members of law enforcement than there are current law enforcement than there are current military. Back to this question of gender, um, which is related uh, for ways that hopefully I can make clear. Um, the group tends to be white and male, but there are members of minoritized communities and there are also women who join. And the group, as far as I can tell, makes no distinction between men and women, makes no distinction between people who self-identify as white or self-identify as belonging to a different racial or ethnic group. Um, similarly, the group allows both current and former military and law enforcement, as well as people who don't have that experience. They say that if, you're, if you don't have any military or law enforcement or first responder experience, they put them in the category of associate members rather than full members. But as near as I can tell, there's no substantive difference between being an associate member or a full member. It's a difference in name only. And, and one of my 
Um, one, of, one of the background questions that motivates a lot of my work is thinking about when and how is violence seen as legitimate and acceptable? And are there any conditions under which I think violence is acceptable as a tool used to achieve political outcomes? Um, and that second one leads me, it, it's really a, a sort of deep background question. It's not something that I directly try to answer with my research, but it leads me to think about, okay, what is the difference between some of these anti-government extremists and some of the um, armed um, colleagues of the civil rights movement. So some of these anti-government extremists try to explicitly link themselves with, for example, the Deacons for Defense and Justice. I believe I'm getting the name of that organization right, which was a group of African-Americans living in the South who said basically like, forget this nonviolent stuff, we're gonna arm up and we're gonna defend ourselves. We're gonna make sure that these white supremacists don't come to our towns and kill us. And I've seen- well, that's the key is self-defense. Self-defense is, is uh, honored to be the law as a right of people. Yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting to think about that though, right? If, if we think about other examples of self-defense, we can think about standard ground laws as being couched in the language of self-defense. And we see it end up getting used in contexts that don't look very much like self-defense to me. Somebody on Twitter the other day had this great summation of um, some of the rhetorical strategies that Putin was using in the run-up to the Ukrainian invasion. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher this person's wonderful phrasing, but it was something like, he's creating the pretext that then creates that renders violence as self-defense, creates the pretext that renders violence as self-defense. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the anti-government extremists do as well. They, they describe American society as being under such dire threat that they are put in a position where they choose, do we live on our knees or do we take up our guns? We take up our guns, even if that means dying. That was Professor Sam Jackson from the University at Albany. His new book is titled Oath Keepers, Patriotism and the Edge of Violence in a Right-Wing Anti-Government Group. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>